Section 17 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lord Seaforth, who was born deaf and dumb, was to dine one day with Lord Melville. Just before the time of the company's arrival, Lady Melville sent into the drawing-room a lady of her acquaintance who could talk with her fingers to dumb people, that she might receive Lord Seaforth. Presently Lord Guildford entered the room, and the lady, taking him for Lord Seaforth, began to ply her fingers very nimbly. Lord Guildford did the same, and they had been carrying on a conversation in this manner for about ten minutes, when Lady Melville joined them. Her female friend immediately said, Well, I've been talking away to this dumb man. Dumb? cried Lord Guildford. Bless me, I thought you were dumb. I told this story, which is perfectly true, to Matthews, and he said that he could make excellent use of it at one of his evening entertainments, but I know not if he ever did. A friend of mine in Portland Place has a wife who inflicts upon him every season two or three immense evening parties. At one of those parties he was standing in a very forlorn condition, leaning against the chimney-piece, when a gentleman coming up to him said, Sir, as neither of us is acquainted with any of the people here, I think we had best go home. One of the books which I never tire reading is Memoirs sur la vie de Jean Racine by his son. When I was living in the temple, the chimneys of one of my neighbours were to be swept. Up went two boys and at the end of an hour they had not come down again. Two other boys were then sent up, and up they remained also. The master of the boys was now summoned, who on his arrival exclaimed, Oh, the idle little rascals! They're playing at all fours on the top of the chimney. And to be sure, there they were, trumping it away at their ease. I suppose spades were their favourite cards. Neither Moore nor myself had ever seen Byron when it was settled that he should dine at my house to meet Moore. Nor was he known by sight to Campbell, who, happening to call upon me that morning, consented to join the party. I thought it best that I alone should be in the drawing-room when Byron entered it, and Moore and Campbell accordingly withdrew. Soon after his arrival they returned, and I introduced them to him severally naming them as Adam named the beasts. When we sat down to dinner, I asked Byron if he would take soup. No, he never took soup. Would he take some fish? No, he never took fish. Presently I asked if he would eat some mutton. No, he never ate mutton. I then asked if he would take a glass of wine. No, he never tasted wine. It was now necessary to inquire what he did eat and drink, and the answer was nothing but hard biscuit and soda water. Unfortunately, neither hard biscuits nor soda water were at hand, and he dined upon potatoes bruised down on his plate and drenched with vinegar. My guests stayed till very late, discussing the merits of Walter Scott and Joanna Bailey. Some days after, meeting Hobhouse, I said to him, How long will Lord Byron persevere in his present diet? 
He replied, Just as long as you continue to notice it. I did not then know what I now know to be a fact, that Byron, after leaving my house, had gone to a club in St. James's Street and eaten a hearty meat supper. Byron sent me Child Harold in the printed sheets before it was published, and I read it to my sister. This, I said, in spite of all its beauty, will never please the public. They will dislike the querulous, repining tone that pervades it, and the dissolute character of the hero. But I quickly found that I was mistaken. The genius which the poem exhibited, the youth, the rank of the author, his romantic wanderings in Greece, these combined to make the world stark mad about Child Harold and Byron. I knew two old maids in Buckinghamshire who used to cry over the passage about Harold's, quote, laughing dames that long had fed his youthful appetite, etc. After Byron had become the rage, I was frequently amused at the manoeuvres of certain noble ladies to get acquainted with him by means of me. For instance, I would receive a note from Lady Blank, requesting the pleasure of my company on a particular evening with a postscript. Pray, could you not contrive to bring Lord Byron with you? Once at a great party given by Lady Jersey, Mrs. Sheridan ran up to me and said, Do, as a favour, try if you can place Lord Byron beside me at supper. Byron had prodigious facility of composition. He was fond of suppers, and used often to sup at my house and eat heartily, for he had then given up the hard biscuit and soda-water diet. After going home, he would throw off sixty or eighty verses, which he would send to the press next morning. He one evening took me to the green room of Drury Lane Theatre, where I was much entertained. When the play began, I went round to the front of the house, and desired the box-keeper to show me into Lord Byron's box. I'd been there for about a minute, thinking myself quite alone, when suddenly Byron and Miss Boyce, the actress, emerged from a dark corner. In those days, at least, Byron had no readiness of reply in conversation. If you happened to let fall any observation which offended him, he would say nothing at the time, but the offence would lie rankling in his mind, and perhaps a fortnight after he would suddenly come out with some very cutting remarks upon you, giving them as his deliberate opinions, the results of his experience of your character. Several women were in love with Byron, but none so violently as Lady Caroline Lamb. She absolutely besieged him. He showed me the first letter he received from her, in which she assured him that if he was in any want of money, quote, all her jewels were at his service. They frequently had quarrels, and more than once on coming home I have found Lady C. walking in the garden and waiting for me to beg that I would reconcile them. When she met Byron at a party, she would always, if possible, return home from it in his carriage and accompanied by him. I recollect particularly their returning to town together from Holland House. But such was the insanity of her passion for Byron that sometimes, 
when not invited to a party where he was to be, she would wait for him in the street till it was over. One night, after a great party at Devonshire House, to which Lady Caroline had not been invited, I saw her, yes, saw her, talking to Byron with half of her body thrust into the carriage which he had just entered. In spite of all this absurdity, my firm belief is that there was nothing criminal between them. Byron was at last sick of her. When their intimacy was at an end, and while she was living in the country, she burned very solemnly, on a sort of funeral pyre, transcripts of all the letters which she had received from Byron, and a copy of a miniature, his portrait, which he had presented to her. Several girls from the neighbourhood, whom she had dressed in white garments, dancing round the pile, and singing a song which she had written for the occasion, Burn, fire, burn, etc. She was mad, and her family allowed her to do whatever she chose. Latterly, I believe, Byron never dined with Lady B, for it was one of his fancies or affectations that, quote, he could not endure to see women eat. I recollect that he once refused to meet Madame de Stahl at my house at dinner, but came in the evening, and when I have asked him to dinner without mentioning what company I was to have, he would write me a note to inquire, quote, if I had invited any women. Wilkes's daughter may have had a right to burn her father's memoirs, but Moore, I conceive, was not justified in giving his consent to the burning of Byron's. When Byron told him that he might, quote, do whatever he pleased with them, Byron certainly never contemplated their being burned. If Moore had made me his confidant in the business, I should have protested warmly against the destruction of the memoirs, but he chose Luttrell, probably because he thought him the more fashionable man, and Luttrell, who cared nothing about the matter, readily voted that they should be put into the fire. There were, I understand, some gross things in that manuscript, but I read only a portion of it and did not light upon them. I remember that it contained this anecdote. On his marriage night, Byron suddenly started out of his first sleep. A taper which burned in the room was casting a ruddy glare through the crimson curtains of the bed and he could not help exclaiming in a voice so loud that he awakened Lady B, Good God, I am surely in hell. My latest intercourse with Byron was in Italy. We travelled some time together, and if there was any scenery particularly well worth seeing, he generally contrived that we should pass through it in the dark. As we were crossing the Apennines, he told me that he had left an order in his will that Allegra, the child who soon after died, his daughter by Miss C., should never be taught the English language. You know that Allegra was buried at Harrow, but probably you have not heard that the body was sent over to England in two packages, that no one might suspect what it was. About the same time, he said that being at last assured that the celebrated critique on his early poems in the Edinburgh Review was written by Lord Brougham, quote, If ever I return to England, Brougham shall hear from me. He added, 
That critique cost me three bottles of claret to raise his spirits after reading it. One day during dinner at Pisa, when Shelley and Trelawney were with us, Byron chose to run down Shakespeare, for whom he, like Sheridan, either had or pretended to have little admiration. I said nothing, but Shelley immediately took up the defence of the great poet and conducted it in his usual meek yet resolute manner, unmoved by the rude things with which Byron interrupted him. That's all very well for an atheist, etc. Parenthesis. Before meeting Shelley in Italy, I had seen him only once. It was at my own house in St. James's Place, where he called upon me, introducing himself, to request the loan of some money which he wished to present to Lee Hunt, and he offered me a bond for it. Having numerous claims upon me at that time, I was obliged to refuse the loan. Both in appearance and in manners, Shelley was the perfect gentleman. End parenthesis. That same day, after dinner, I walked in the garden with Byron. At the window of a neighbouring house was a young woman holding a child in her arms. Byron nodded to her with a smile, and then turning to me said, That child is mine. In the evening, we, that is Byron, Shelley, Trelawney, and I, rode out from Pisa to a farm, a podere, and there a pistol was put into my hand for shooting at Mark, a favourite amusement of Byron, but I declined trying my skill at it. The farmkeeper's daughter was very pretty, and had her arms covered with bracelets. The gift of Byron, who did not fail to let me know that she was one of his many loves. I went with him to see the Campo Santo at Pisa. It was shown to us by a man who had two handsome daughters. Byron told me that he had in vain paid his addresses to the elder daughter, but that he was on the most intimate terms with the other. Probably there was not one syllable of truth in all this, for he always had the weakness of wishing to be thought much worse than he really was. Byron, like Sir Walter Scott, was without any feeling for the fine arts. He accompanied me to the Pitti Palace at Florence, but soon growing tired of looking at the pictures, he sat down on a corner, and when I called out to him, What a noble Andrea del Sato! The only answer I received was his muttering a passage from the Vicar of Wakefield. Upon asking how he had been taught the art of a conoscente so very suddenly, etc., when he and Hobhouse were standing before the Parthenon, the latter said, Well, this is surely very grand. Byron replied, Very like the mansion house. At this time we generally had a regular quarrel every night, and he would abuse me through thick and thin, raking up all the stories he had heard which he thought most likely to mortify me, how I had behaved with great cruelty to Murphy, refusing to assist him in his distress, etc., etc. But next morning he would shake me kindly by both hands, and we were excellent friends again. When I parted from him in Italy, never to meet him more, a good many persons were looking on, anxious to catch a glimpse of the famous Lord. 
The lines in the third canto of Child Harold about the ball given by the Duchess of Richmond at Brussels, the night before the Battle of Waterloo, etc., are very striking. The Duchess told me that she had a list of her company, and that after the battle she added dead to the names of those who had fallen, the number being fearful. Mrs. Barbold once observed to me that she thought Byron wrote best when he wrote about the sea or swimming. There is a great deal of incorrect and hasty writing in Byron's works, but it is overlooked in this age of hasty readers. For instance, I stood in Venice on the bridge of size, a palace and a prison on each hand. He meant to say that on one hand was a palace, and on the other a prison. And what think you of, and dashest him again to earth, there let him lay? End of section 17